on Where You Are. I am Craig Eastman and with me tonight on this Fuds on Film podcast, Scott Morris. Hello. Andrew Tavendale. Hello. Wrapping up our presentation of the works of the French New Wave directors, we will now be discussing the works of the Left Bank directors. So without further ado, we should probably crack on. Drew and I and our uh, hurriedly uh, mumbled commentary track to um, whatever that film was, Shoot the Piano Player. <laughs> it's so memorable I've forgotten already. Um, that aside, uh, we spoke in our first podcast in this particular topic about the much-revered works of the... Um, oh, Cahiers du Cinéma. That's the one, the Cahiers du Cinéma directors, uh, your Jean-Luc Godard and your, uh, your Truffaut types. And we came to the conclusion pretty swiftly there, I think, between the three of us, that only really one of those works was in <laughs> any way, shape or form enjoyable, and that the rest was a steaming pile of cack. That's overemphasising a little, but not massively so. No, no. <laughs> there was very little occupation of the middle ground there, uh, I think, from from the perspective of the three of us, certainly. We'd certainly be very interested to hear if any of you have any uh, strong feelings one way or the other on any of the films we spoke about last time, so do feel free to get in touch at the usual email addresses or via Twitter. But for now, we're going to take a look at the other end of the new wave spectrum, a group of directors known collectively as the Left Bank uh, and comprised largely of names such as Alan Resney, Jacques Demy, Agnes Varda, Chris, <laughs> Chris Marker, Marquet, Markoch, uh, depending, on, <laughs> depending on whose pronunciation you look at. Um, I think those being the most notable names uh, in the field and the ones whose films we'll be looking at tonight. And we are going to kick off, Scott, with Hiroshima Monomore from 1959. With Hiroshima Moramore in what's perhaps one of the bolder moves for what's nominally a romance, uh, the film opens with images of the incredible suffering caused by the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima, mm. intercut with the two intertwined lovers, which is a hell of a mood to create. This was indeed initially created, uh, conceived as a documentary about the Hiroshima bombings, wherein else uh, balked at the necessary grimness that this would involve, and instead opted to transition to a rather gentler story of a fleeting relationship between two lovers. I've seen various credits of them just being called her and him, or <laughs> something along those lines, but IMDb at least calls one of them Elle, uh, played by Emmanuel Riva, a French actress finishing up a filming an anti-war film in Hiroshima, who's currently intertwined with a local architect, Lou, played by Aiji Okada, and I think they're perhaps somewhat more human names to give them rather than just uh, <laughs> the pronouns, so fine, we'll run with those. Elle takes the bulk of the narration duties as she verbalises her experience of Hiroshima and relates it to her own wartime trauma and the aftermath of a doomed relationship with an occupying German soldier during World War II. This is interspersed with observations, comments and disagreements from Eiji, whose past is explored less but it's no less damaged by the war. Uh, he's perhaps more concerned with the possibilities of the relationship in the present while Elle is consumed by the past. So, although the capsule review would call it a relationship drama, it's as much a treatise on memory and how your views of the past affect your interpretation of the present, dealt with in a language that's closer to poetry than dialogue. Technique-wise, this does take the baton of the non-linear narrative from Citizen Kane, but I thought I handled it pretty well, with jump cuts that actually look like there's some intentionality behind them, mm. rather than Godard's random splicing extravagances. All in all, this would feel altogether contemporary, but to be honest, I find it's better than most contemporary works. I really enjoyed Hiroshima Modern War. Definitely deserves its, its reputation and acclaim. It's by no means to everyone's cup of tea, but it's quite challenging the way it's structured, and it's, it's a very 
unusual film and that's it's that kind of uniqueness that kind of uh, really made it stand out for me amongst quite a lot of this film certainly everything we've spoken about this month very nicely put together and very creative use of language i enjoyed it an awful lot gans interesting I, I strongly suspect just from the um the sort of warm-up chat we had before we started recording that my my stance here is going to be considered the middle ground of the three <laughs> um hiroshima monomore i i certainly found it an intriguing and thought-provoking piece on a number of levels and i think to pick up on what you said scott i think resney's experimentation with the the sort of the overall I suppose what you'd call the new wave aesthetic and editing techniques uh, was certainly less distracting than among mm. most of the offerings I think we explored in our, our time with the Cahiers de Cinema. I was immediately a little bit uneasy after that sort of familiarly pretentious opening uh, in which the camera journeys through the streets of Hiroshima interspersed with the, the tight sort of almost abstract shots um, of the, the lovers entwined bodies and that you mentioned and the the repetitious disassociated dialogue uh, it went on sufficiently long for me to start to get quite <laughs> quite bored with it um, but things settled down into uh, a generally more familiar narrative logic that I suspect uh, ought not in itself distract the the less invested viewer but for me personally the occasionally dreamlike asides and the the cold stylistic detachment and air of melancholy around much of the film was kind of broadly at odds with its attempt at eliciting sympathy for the protagonist. And I suspect Hiroshima will stand or fall by the, the movie. That is not the, not the town <laughs> will stand or fall by an audience's tolerance for that kind of thing. I was kind of disappointed because I approached the movie with quite a, a deal of anticipation and normally the atmosphere evoked would be well within my zone of tolerance, if not something I would actively enjoy. But for some reason this time around, things just didn't click into place for me. But with that in mind, I would implore anyone listening to come to their own conclusions as enough people hold this movie in high enough regard that I'm entirely open to the possibility of being wrong. And unlike much of the output of the Cahiers de Cinema, as well as being of technical interest, this, along with probably a lot of the movies we discussed tonight, has at least some of the comfortable old tropes that boring fart cinema conservatives such as myself tend to enjoy. Things such as an evident production value, consistent <laughs> film stock, coherent and believable narrative, relatable <laughs> characters, and an, a nominal notion that writing and rehearsing dialogue far enough in advance might actually be of benefit to your movie, at least on the assumption that you expect the paying public to willingly part with their cash for the privilege of watching it. So I've not... <laughs> Don't be your better. <laughs> no. Um, so I've, I'm probably, probably fair to say I didn't make the immediate connection with this movie that L and... Um, so what was the fella's name again? Lou. Lou. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't make that immediate connection that L and Lou experienced uh, betwixt each other, but at some juncture in the future when I'm in the mood for a brief and torrid affair, I shall return to Hiroshima Monomore and give it the second viewing I suspect it probably deserves. This film is very much... Better, worse, or exactly the same as you and or Scott said. I think you've not seen it then. I haven't seen it, no. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Oh, I thought, oh, no, sorry. You <laughs> said, of course you said you hadn't seen it. <laughs> so maybe maybe my, maybe my opinion would be considered the bottom end of the spectrum in that case. <laughs> sorry about that. Yes, small details, isn't it? Um, we'll move on then to Last Year at Marienbad, which is another of Alan Resney's highly regarded offerings from 1961. Uh, following on from Hiroshima Monomore, this movie sees Alan Resney's doubling down on the dreamlike aesthetic 
Uh, and then some, for what is, in summation at least, an even simpler narrative take on two strangers sharing a connection. At a weekend gathering in a strange, sprawling, ornate chateau, a man known only as X, played by uh, Giorgio Albertazzi, spends 90 of your minutes attempting to convince a woman known only as A, uh, Delphine Seyrig, that the two have actually met previously, you guessed it, last year at Barionbad. Now... Technically speaking, there is more than that to consider, but when director Resney himself has stated that the movie doesn't actually mean anything, you, you may well agree with me that there's probably little to be gained by attempting to explain much. Instead, I will attempt to enlighten you as to whether you are likely to enjoy Marion Bad. So, consider the following. A camera will wander the Baroque hallways and stately rooms of an imposing, one might say, foreboding chateau. It's a bit like The Shining in that respect. Sometimes the halls and corridors will be empty, sometimes there will be people, usually poised and motionless like statues. Point number two, three central characters will interact to varying degrees, though most often they will not be addressing each other face to face. Point three, often our three main characters, or combinations thereof, will be arranged purposefully within the frame in such a fashion as to appear completely disassociated in both time and space from one another. (laughs) Point number four, of the three main characters, A will be the most deliberately poised in various affected poses, and fortunately Delphine Seyrig frequently looks stunning as she does so, though to what end this effect has been elicited we may never know. And finally, I really wasn't joking when I said that for the whole 90 minutes, a man is attempting to convince a woman that they have met before. So, a lot can certainly be said about Marion Bad, and the impression I have is of something approximating a cinematic zip file, or perhaps more accurately, a procedurally generated experimented narrative. That the value output of said narrative is essentially equal to zero seems a moot point, as Resney was clearly more interested in mood and aesthetic and to that end, it's hard to argue that Marion Bad is anything other than a success. Coming across as a leaner, less convoluted proto-Mulholland drive. The issue is that of all the films we'll discuss tonight, Marion Bad is markedly the most experimental, aloof and art of the bunch, and definitely something that's not going to appeal to the casual viewer. That's not to say I didn't enjoy it to some degree, but unless you came out of your last David Lynch viewing thinking what that movie needed was less plot and no interesting (laughs) characters, then it's hard for me to recommend. I don't know, Drew, do you want to chip in at this point and offer us your thoughts on last year at Marion Bad? While trying to keep this um, podcast without much swearing, I will try. Don't ruin Um, it for the kiddies, Drew. There are two things that I want to mention here. Now, the screenwriter has been quoted as saying that there are really two ways in which you can view this work depending on the point of view you take or perhaps your personality. First, he said two attitudes are possible. Either the spectator will try to reconstitute some Cartesian scheme, the most linear, the most rational he can devise, and this spectator will certainly find the film difficult, if not incomprehensible. Now, that's probably where I was coming from to begin with. I'm looking for something narratively cohesive and satisfying. And on that score, it fails incredibly because... It's out of sequence, it is not in any way satisfying or interesting. Or his other point of view was that the spectator will let himself be carried along by the extraordinary images in front of him, and to this spectator the film will seem the easiest he's ever seen, a film addressed exclusively to his sensibility, to his faculties of sight, hearing and feeling. I tried from this point of view also. <laughs> I take exception I also hated to that, it. yeah. <laughs> I hated it in every point of view from that point of view as well, because it did not in any way appeal to my faculties of sight, hearing or feeling. And I 
ended up I watched the last half hour of this at double speed just to make it end quicker and listen I'll vouch for him listeners he does have those faculties honestly I don't really know what to say about this film it was I mean it's undoubtedly got high production values but the constant deliberate and constant aping of silent film and the director even went as far as trying to get Kodak to supply him film stock that would look like a silent movie and bloom in the same manner and the poses of the characters are like background characters in silent movies all of that just really irritated me because there wasn't anything of depth beyond that just to me felt like all surface no feeling and I I don't know I just did not like this film I I don't know if I'd go so far to say as it's got high production value I think it gives the appearance of having a higher production value you know compared to what we've watched recently which was stuff yeah stuff with no like this this film bothered to get permits and stuff like that (laughs) And had consistent film stock. So there is that. But I, I, I kind of, I know I said it about Hiroshima Mon Amour, but I will go back and watch Marion Bad again because I feel like, Drew, like you said, I felt like I should be able to enjoy this on a purely aesthetic level. And it kind of, I was kind of caught off guard by it. Um, so I want to give it a second chance again. What I will say is that Delphine Serig, I could just look at her all day. I kind of coasted through it just looking at Delphine Seyrig when I when I decided that I was just going to switch off to everything else because she's she's absolutely stunning in this. See, I didn't find that at all. So when really um like yeah, I think that's it was for when I realised quite quickly that because I hadn't I'd gone into watching this with no prior knowledge of the film at all beyond the name and I, that was quite deliberate. Mm. And I quite quickly realised, okay, this isn't um, something cohesive. It's quite dreamlike in structure and in, well, I use narrative very loosely, but dreamlike in structure and narrative. Okay, switch my mind to a different point of view. But even the stuff that was dreamlike to me, it just like, this is the dullest dream that I have ever seen. <laughs> and aesthetically, it just, it did nothing for me because it was in the most ugly buildings and that, and I just kept finding myself getting drawn out of that thinking, oh, that's the most hideous wall I've ever seen. Mm. Um, and then that woman, to me, she was, it was just, she was just a woman on screen. She didn't, I didn't find her appealing. I didn't find anything about the film visually appealing at all. It just, the whole thing left me cold. Um, now that's maybe just a, a thing that differs from person to person. Um, it's as simple as that. But for me, there's, I didn't find any of the characters striking or interesting looking or any of the sets beautiful or I'm, I'm beginning to worry that you've had your eyes gouged out because I thought <laughs> <laughs> I was willing to let the assassin go when you said you, you, found, the <laughs> you found the assassin at odds with uh, your particular taste in visual aesthetics. Uh, it's a bit harsh to say there's no visual appeal in this movie. I don't think it was maybe as visually appealing as I would have liked, but I did find a certain visual appeal there. As well, let's, let's throw it to Scott, who's a, whose opinion... We are dying to hear. <laughs> it did take me about half an hour to get any sort of purchase on this film mm. at all. It, it does seem like, as you mentioned earlier, Craig, it's, it's like the middle ground between the most obscure David Lynch work and an MC Escher painting. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a very plausible alternative scenario where after that half hour I just went, well, what seems to be more or less what Drew's done, went, Nope, and more or less turned off with it. But somehow I, I kind of figured out this trick of just managing to separate out the conversation entirely from this tumult of imagery, mm-hmm. which is just, I found striking, uh, whether you think the, the building's ugly or not, I think the the way that all these fra- all this framing set up, the mm-hmm. positioning of these characters, the way they're 
like almost geometrically opposed to each other in places. I found that all incredibly interesting. Mm-hmm. It did help create a, a, a very intriguing mood for me for this film. Um, as you mentioned, narratively, that's you're not going to get any real joy out of this. But I did find that it was it managed after you know half an hour, forty minutes to kind of get to me into that kind of slightly hypnotic trance-like state that you need to be in for this kind of thing to work. And because of that, I did actually wind up enjoying it quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, towards the end, the fact that it's almost not quite, but it's almost my favourite film that we'll talk about here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll happily go back and see this and other films that uh, I can see that Arnos has done before. Uh, it's it, it's clearly difficult. It's it's in no way accessible or anything like that, and it's 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 a tough film to get through, particularly if you've decided that you don't particularly care for this sort of thing. But I do, and I did, and I liked it, so mm-hmm. I, I was happy enough to to be the. Outlier this one say that like the novel. Well, this is why I'll revisit it because typically I would enjoy this kind of thing, and I, and I know I suspect Drew you might as well because I mean the pair of us got very heavily lost in Mulholland Drive when we first mm-hmm. saw it in the cinema, and I, I was kind of looking forward to what little I knew of the film was you know was the, its narrative style and its dreamlike quality. So I was kind of taken aback that I didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I would, but I will give it a go because visually, yes, that that whole thing, as you say, Scott, of the posing and the framing is is very intriguing and I think it, it could well just be a case of waiting for that thing to click but um, we'll we'll see we'll see see I mean I know that generally I am very narratively driven that's I tend to find mm. that I desire not need but desire a, a satisfying narrative in most films I watch but, but that's by no means exclusive and as you mentioned we both love Mulholland Drive so very much and so I'm not certainly immune to that and there are times that I can get really into that so I mean, it's not out with the bounds of possibility. I'd want to watch that again, and perhaps it's a mood thing. But I just I found it so unenjoyable this time around that it's going to be quite far down the list of any films I would give a second go to at the moment. Mm. I can see, I can see both ends of that argument. Um, and I think it's one of those movies where any praise or criticism is it's very hard to dismiss as being invalid. So uh, yeah, mm. it could well it could well come down to what kind of mood you're in. But yeah, it was put into a. A compendium of films um, a few years ago called the Fifty Worst Movies Ever, which it quite clearly isn't. In yeah, no I, shape I or noticed form. that as well, and I thought that's um, that's not right, whichever way you cut it. Although, and I celebrate also including another end of it's also another book called Your know, Thousand One Movies You Must See Before You Die. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's anywhere between those two extremes, but it certainly. Although a thousand and one's a lot of movies, maybe but, uh, <laughs> certainly with that. Uh, or like students of film, then there's definitely things of interest in there. And you can see that the influence and it's been yeah. repeatedly mentioned as influence in things like David Lynch or Inland Empire, probably more often. But you kind of don't want to fall back on that though, because even the worst of the Cahiers, the cinema films, you could say that about those as well, that they're at mm-hmm. least of technical right. interest, right? There's a lot of things, yeah. Yeah, there are many, there are many things, you know, satisfying filmic experience, they are not, but certainly on a technical level, there's some interest there if that's your bag. Yeah, uh, an interesting one. I thought this one might split us relatively relatively evenly as it turns out. So it'll be interesting maybe to revisit um, a couple of these later on down the line. But let's move on to 1961's Lola, the first of two Jacques Demy films we'll talk about. And Scott, you were going to introduce that. In fact, you were going to do the whole damn thing because Drew and I didn't manage to watch it. Fair enough. Lola was described as a musical without music, although given the performance that Lola gives in the club, even this minimal amount is far too much. <laughs> anyway, that's rather getting ahead of myself. Cecile, played by Anoukami, uh, better known by her stage name Lola, is working touring the cabaret bars of France with her young son in tow. 
on the other side of town, Roland Cassard, has slumped in late to a job that he could not stand for the last time, getting himself fired and having little immediate prospects of any more palatable job appearing anytime soon. Wandering through the town, he happens upon Lola, who happens to be an ex-girlfriend of his, and realises that he is still infatuated with her. Lola doesn't particularly share those feelings, instead dreaming that the father of her child, Michelle, played by Jack Sarden, will return after some years of absence, but in the short term at least, she's loosely attached to Frankie, played by Alan Scott, an American sailor who reminds her of Michelle. Another axis in the relationship opens up when a chance meeting in a bookstore with a young girl coincidentally named Cecile leads to Roland meeting her mother, Madame Desnoyers, played by Elena Labordet, who seems to be quite taken with the young man. But it seems that no one's going to be around to live happily ever after, with Lola perhaps heading off to another town on the circuit, Frankie shipping back off the Navy, and Roland being approached to take on an exceedingly shady delivery to South Africa. So perhaps no one will end up with who they want to be with, but at least they'll all be heading off in different directions to avoid reminding each other of these missed opportunities. Or will they? Who can say? Only those who watch the film, I suppose. Um, I'm not necessarily recommending that you do that, to be honest. While I've no particular beef with any of the actors or the events contained within the film, it didn't speak to me on any emotional level, and for a film that's so concerned with emotion, that's a bit of a problem. It's asking perfectly reasonable questions about the nature of love versus the need for stability in life, particularly when you have other responsibilities, but none of the characters particularly chime for me. Roland's a shade too obnoxious, Lola's a shade too flighty, Frankie's a shade too clingy in as much as he's given any personality at all. Uh, So, yes, it's asking perfectly fine questions, but I'm not invested enough in any of the characters to care a great deal about any of the answers. I've seen a great many more objectionable films, but this one rather bounced off me and is not recommended. Slammed. Boof. (laughs) Sound of Scott dropping his mic. Okay, so the second of the Jacques Demy films we'll talk about tonight is Le Parapluie de Cherbourg, or The Umbrellas of Cherbourg to you and I. Uh, from 19- Only very tangentially about umbrellas. Yes, <laughs> bait and switch. absolutely. It's a film that does like it, some umbrellas, Scott, um, from time to time, certainly, but... It actually, come to think of it, it kind of front loads the umbrella action. But I, dig- yes. I digress. From 1964, a kitchen sink musical whose frequently arch presentation belies a mournful heart. Set between November 1957 and December 1963, we are introduced to Genevieve, played by Catherine Deneuve, who works in her mother's umbrella shop, the titular Le Parapluie de Cherbourg, and her lover Guy played by Nino Castelnuovo, uh, a young mechanic. Hopelessly in love, without the knowledge of their guardians, the pair dream of marriage, but their plans are firmly sliced into the long grass when Guy is drafted to serve in the French-Algerian War. Before leaving for enlistment, Guy consummates his relationship with Genevieve, who becomes pregnant as a result, further compounding her distress. As Guy's occasional correspondence proves small consolation to Genevieve, she is pressured by her mother toward marrying Roland, financially sound diamond merchant who, while often away in business, is at least devoted to Genevieve in the time the pair are able to spend together and, crucially, agrees to raise the child as his own. It should come as no surprise, given that variations of this story have been told many times before and since, that upon Guy's return, both he and his former lover find they have both changed immeasurably and that life has taken them down very different paths. What did come as a surprise, however, given my lack of foreknowledge of the movie, is that Les Parapluies de Cherbourg is an out-and-out musical, not in the Rodgers and Hammerstein sense of drama punctuated by song and dance numbers, but in the Les Miserables mode of every word of dialogue being sung, uh, or perhaps more accurately, song spoken to musical accompaniment. And I do mean every 
<laughs> Every word. It's an admittedly bold move on Demi's part, though one which will immediately predispose the movie to alienating a large percentage of any casual audience, not to mention having little obvious narrative purpose other than to inject a bit of interest mm-hmm. into a well-trodden plot. It is a technique which has, of course, been seldom used. However, it's probably fair to say that that is a double-edged sword in numerous respects, and equally fair to say that there are good reasons why it is such a narrative rarity. That aside, Umbrellas is a largely well-produced, acted and presented piece of filmmaking, and I certainly applaud such bold decisions taken on, presumably a smaller budgetary scale than I would perhaps have expected. Uh, While I'm certainly not in love with Umbrellas on a personal level, I can appreciate its appeal to others, and I will again echo the sentiment that it is head and shoulders above most of the work we reviewed in our episode (laughs) on the Cahier de Cinema. Now, I'm going to throw to I'm going to throw to you on this okay. occasion, Scott. What did you think of Le Parapluie de Cherbourg? Yeah, well, if Lola was a musical without music, then this probably makes The Umbrellas a musical without theatricality. Um, <laughs> the or, question a musical seems, with too much music. Yeah, the, the question appears to be along the lines of what if we took dialogue of a standard relationship drama and applied it to music, regardless of content and meter? And I'm really <laughs> glad that yeah. I'm really glad that you actually we got the grant from the uh, Film Science Authority to have these kind of experiments carried out. But the results are in, and the the, the, que- the answer to the question was. Don't do it. It's super weird. <laughs> it's literally right at the garage at the start. I think I started laughing at the point where the guy asked him if he can work overtime. Like, can, can you work overtime? Can you work an extra hour tonight? It's a problem for me. Oh, my days. <laughs> so it's imagine that it's almost the film that Demi wanted to make with Lola. Lola was going to be a musical from the outset, but he couldn't afford to have that kind of production uh, with the, the shoestring he was shooting it on. And basically the same questions that I asked in Lola are coming through in Umbrellas as well. Um, and Indeed, it's got some of the same characters. Well, Roland Cassard is uh, the same character that was doing the shady diamond deal in Lola, as apparently oh. it worked out for him. <laughs> and so he's uh, become more of a success in this film. And So it's the DCU, I, right? The semi-cinematic universe. <laughs> yeah, well, um, Lola appears in another film as well, so yeah, <laughs> he has got a little... Uh, narrative powerhouse going on with these so much as you could call it that as with Lola it asks perfectly fine questions and I understand why it's asking them and uh, they're perfectly sensible things to go about how you change over time how love can be how you can change and all that kind of thing it just didn't really care I, I liked it more than Lola uh, the characters are much more likable it's a much easier watch I think it looks very nice I, I do like the uh, Technicolor riots that it's going through. I thought it looked pretty, pretty it, in that it respect. It certainly made a, a refreshing change from most of the other material we've watched this month, right? Mm. Mm. Yes, but uh, in the end, I just really didn't care whether it's my. I, I'm prejudiced against musicals at the best of times, anyway. Mm. Um, so it was not likely to really float my boat on that basis. But it was. It's, a, it's probably less objectionable than a lot of musicals that I've seen, but at the same time, I can't really recommend anyone rush out and see it. It's an interesting little experiment, but not one that I think has actually landed with much success. Andrew, I know that you've got an opinion on this movie. <laughs> yes, I do. You Could you, you tell it to me, please? <laughs> First of all, uh, like Scott just mentioned that he's no great fan of musicals. I think probably of the three of us, I am the most fond of musicals, but that's not to say I'm a great musicals fan by any means. And this certainly is set quite apart from pretty much anything else we've covered in these La Nouvelle Vague films. It's certainly colourful and the 
option to do or they're opting to make it kind of opera-like and have every line of dialogue sung was a bold choice. Again, as Scott said, with reference to the fact that regardless of meter, content um, or complete mediocrity of uh, mundanity of story, whether that was a good idea or not, um, is perhaps, I was going to say up for a debate, but I wouldn't debate it at all, saying no, no, it's not a good idea. I just question whether it actually counts as a musical if there aren't actually any songs it's just the same song with exactly the same music for the entire film <laughs> because look at something like um tom hooper's les miserables which which i love yes i know and i'm very fond of as well actually but when his film presentation of it, he decided to have all of the regular bits between the songs sung as well just so and that still didn't work that well because those were bits that were written as regular dialogue. But the bits between them were actual songs written as songs. Whereas in The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, mm. largely what they seem to have done is just put the most slight uh, musicality behind stuff that was clearly meant to, or would be far better as dialogue spoken in a regular people way. Well, as the, as the dubious distinction of basically being the only musical I know of with no musical numbers. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's not... Um, does it count as a musical if there aren't any songs? Because there are is, no songs. Or is it's, it its own thing? Really, that's what I kept noticing this. And it's why? Look, it's look, look, boys, I'm not creating a separate category just for this one film. <laughs> <laughs> it's a musical, all right? Um, but yeah, while I've watched this and I really wasn't enjoying it, I mean, certainly it's... I mean, the story is pretty ordinary because you've seen it a thousand times before, as you mentioned, Craig. Mm-hmm. And well, it's colourful, certainly, which sets it apart a bit, but I think you're spoiled for colourful musicals round about that era. Mm-hmm. But or you rather you are spoiled, you're not um, searching for them. Mm-hmm. It is just that there are no musical numbers, there are no songs. It's the one, basically one way of singing for the entire film with no notable distinction between any scene or story part. I just don't see what the point of the film was. And this this is surprising me massively, but I'm finding that much as there was to hate and a lot of what we covered in the Calle de Cinema category, mm. my experience of the left bank is considerably worse. And <laughs> that's <is> quite shocking. <laughs> and yes, but you, you have been hit on the head quite recently, so that <laughs> yes. probably explains quite a lot of it, because I'm, I enjoyed all of these far more than mm-hmm. any bar, perhaps one of the guys the cinema ones that we talked about. So yeah, I would echo that. But me. opinions differ. Uh, so moving on to uh, the one work of Agnes Varda, which we will look at, which is Cleo from 5 to 7, uh, whose French title I'm not even going to attempt to pronunciate, from 1962. Uh, perhaps more accurately, Cleo from 5 to half 6, actually. Florence Victoire. Yeah, I up on that. going to annoy me. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Inaccurate. Yes. Florence Victoire, or Cleo by stage name played here by Corinne Marchand, is a young Parisian pop singer with three singles under her belt, anxiously awaiting biopsy results from the hospital. Obsessed with image and beauty, Cleo also allows herself to be distracted by ridiculous superstitions, proclaiming that she needn't wait for her call from the hospital as the tarot card reading which opens the movie has already confirmed that she will die. With 90 minutes to kill before the call, Cleo decides to distract herself in numerous ways, from interacting with her PA, to auditioning new tracks with the duo of her songwriting team, to catching up with an old friend, and ultimately finding solace in a strange man waiting by a hedge in the park, as you so obviously do when you're a successful, beautiful young woman out on your own. Cleo is a difficult character to warm to, mainly because the film goes out of its way to portray her as a gullible, preening, immature, self-indulgent child lady from the onset. In one... 
<laughs> in one very early scene, probably not even five minutes in, Cleo consoles herself by looking in a mirror and observing that at least she is still beautiful. And as long as she remains so, everything will be fine. After all, and I quote, ugliness is a kind of death. At which point I'm pretty sure I shouted, F- at the TV while I reached for the remote. The remote was nowhere to be found, however, and so I pressed on, broadly to my benefit, as the movie gradually introduces us, through Cleo's personal interactions, to the notion that she might not be so shallow at heart and that perhaps there is someone worth caring about beneath the expensive hats and beautifully quaffed hair. While Cleo is clearly designed to rub one up the wrong way, it is to Corinne Marchand's credit that her performance subtly begins to elicit her sympathy, and by the end of the movie, there is the notion that regardless of the test results, Cleo is, for now, looking to a brighter future as a human being. Structurally, the movie takes place in real time, with regular title cards denoting the times that divide the narrative into loose chapters, and also raising the question as to why this movie is named for a two-hour period when it itself (laughs) proclaims and demonstrably covers... 90 minutes such nitpicking aside actually no that's <laughs> so goddamn stupid and annoying especially for a movie that runs in real time i implore you to spend some time thinking about that as by the time you listen to this podcast it will most likely still be gnawing at me uh, anywho i'm going to let cleo off with that just as i'm going to overlook the way french men are portrayed as acting toward women in all of these movies i have by this point accepted that this is just the new wave way of things and that it's apparently all right indeed often funny for grossly overtly lecherous men to say try and reach from one moving car into another in the pursuit of inappropriately touching up an attractive young woman in the back of a taxi yeah and then to quite rightly apparently get to insult her for not responding yes absolutely so again i'm going to repeat what i said before cleo from five to seven is not my favorite film of all time but i certainly found a lot more to enjoy in it than i did anything bar one film that we spoke about in our last regular podcast true would you like to guess what i'm going to say about this i think you're going to say you bloody loved it no but it's comfortably the best of these left bank films i saw um ah there you go I think with, um, I'm with you there, you're sort of predisposed to dislike her from the beginning. Well, first of all, she's visiting a tarot card reader, which is uh, already, it's like ringing alarm bells in my head. Like, okay, right. Um, (laughs) You're one of those. This this person doesn't have much going on upstairs, I'm thinking. And also, just a slight aside, I'm not quite sure what the- Why is it colour? Exactly, the aimed for effect was why half of that was in colour and half in black and white. Why I looked into that. And it's apparently uh, a decision on Agnes Varda's part to highlight the fact that the tarot card reading is clearly fantastical, whereas the rest of the movie is real. But it's just a tarot card reading. There's nothing fantastical about it. Fantastical! <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, so she you sort of, she's set up as like this quite vapid person. And so to begin with, it's quite hard to, to warm to and she and she's in the cafe shortly after <laughs> and she's talking to her maid oh is that maid stroke friend it's, oh sorry I thought you were going to say the bit about the second cafe she goes into carry on oh, no, um, I'll come back to that <laughs> okay. um, now the cafe at the start just when she's like mm. she's like woe is me and uh, like shut up I think it's, the film's already suggesting that, that she's completely overblown and she's probably a hypochondriac mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but as the film goes on and you have to struggle through those first maybe 20 minutes I think because the character's Grossly unlikable. Although, although in the scene you mentioned that it does at least hint at the fact that yes, the movie knows that, and it's yeah. it's not expecting you to like her at this point. I'm not sure I would go as far as grossly unlikable, but certainly um, hard to warm to and like difficult to sort of put any emotional investment in because she's a bit thin and 
I wanted to reach through my TV <laughs> and strangle her. <laughs> so I felt me a bit close to that later. It's been going on about all the the omens and stuff that she's seen. Like, oh. Shut up, would you? Please, that drives me crazy, that stuff. But later on, you see, you know, she's sort of being teased by her um, songwriters. Basically, we begin to get hints there that there's a there's a bit more going on. You know, she, she realises that people are only sort of interested in her for her looks and like that she can sell music and stuff, but she wants people to see that there's something more underneath. And you begin to get a feeling that there is something more underneath. So warm to the character a little. And for the rest of it, it's not. I wasn't completely blown away by this film, but it's, it is like listed on IMDb as a comedy, which is stretching uh-huh. it a bit. Uh-huh. But there's certainly funny moments and the character and our interactions later on, even if they don't ring true, as you said about the way that woman would like meet people standing by a hedge in a park for, you know, the relationship with that guy in the park, it seems natural is not quite the word, but it seems fairly easy going and uh-huh. not, and quite entertaining to watch. Yeah, it's, um, dif- it's difficult to believe, but it's it's entertaining in the sort of mm-hmm. chemistry and the rapport they clearly have together. As the film goes on, the character builds a bit, she becomes more interesting and likeable. I'm still not convinced on what the film's trying to say. There are sort of several schools of thought suggest this is all about French feminism in the 1960s, etc. And I really think that's a stretch. Mm, yes. Um, I'm not really seeing that. It's a fairly light-hearted, interesting film about this woman who's have something almost like she's having a midlife crisis a bit early really um, <laughs> and all happening within about 90 minutes but yeah it's interesting but yeah it does have its down points too like the other time she's in the cafe and putting her own music on it's because it's a big ego trip and yeah but also and markedly like i sat there watching that thinking and her behavior in that cafe is so erratic she's standing uh-huh. up she's walking back and forward she's sitting down she's standing up she's walking up to the other end of the cafe looking quite furtive sitting down i thought man how telling that in this day and age if you did that in a, a cafe in paris you'd be shot by the police <laughs> and there are some other slightly, slightly surreal bits in it like the guy swallowing frogs <laughs> yeah. in a huge plume of water as one does <laughs> like, I really could decide whether that was meant to be just like a magic trick or he was actually swallowing frogs and um, the water was something else well but... the French don't have sweets do they <laughs> yeah I don't really have a great deal of insight to add to this film I just found it reasonably enjoyable the character's quite interesting and a bit more narratively cohesive than, say, Last Year at Marion Bad was. Yes, markedly. Yeah, it's not your panning to see it, but it's... <laughs> it's very interesting. And it sets itself in time quite well because the... I mean, the only bit that might be considered feminism is the taxi driver. Yes. Is a woman, but... Um, then what happens while well, she's driving that taxi um, and the women's apparent acceptance of it... Um, yeah. Would suggest otherwise, but the other thing is like kind of as a document of the time. There's some interest oh. to it because it's the fashions and the music of early 1960s France, Paris, in particular, and it does set itself in time quite well with the news stories that are on the radio. Uh-huh. But it's about Kennedy and Khrushchev and then the Algerian War, etc. Uh-huh. So it's like a document of the time. It's got some interest as well. I'm not sure about yeah the feminism thing beyond that. That's like one character for one like five minutes, but unless like the fact that there's another woman driver in it at some point is somehow shocking and revelatory. But I'm gonna guess not. Scott, any thinky thoughts? Uh, yeah, I'm a bit, bit surprised you're not seeing more of the feminist uh, nature of it. It's, I thought, relatively clear. I mean, the whole first half of the film, is, as you, you've mentioned already, is about the, how she's obnoxiously obs- concerned with her looks and how that's the only th- uh, value that she has in it. But from about halfway through the film, as she's 
gets more and more concerned with her mortality and her legacy that she's going to leave behind. You can you can see that she's become very conscious of the male gaze towards her, the gazes that she welcomed in the first half of the film. She's now actively running from and trying to hide from. So I mean that that's really the feminist aspect of it for me. I thought was. Fairly obvious. Uh, as in terms of the rest of the film, again, I expect I enjoyed it quite a lot more than you guys. Uh, and in retrospect, I probably put a lot more of Agnes Varda's films in as opposed to her uh, husband, Jax Remy. Yeah. Uh, I find that he's, she's a tremendously interesting career even to this day. She's actually just announced that she's starting work on another film uh, and she's 88, which is... <laughs> Very interesting career to, to look at there. Yeah, I enjoyed Cleo more than you guys. Not really going to argue with uh, much of the things you say. A lot of the, the narrative is a little bit... Well, certainly when you start reducing it to bullet point terms, it's very mundane. You know, she she goes to meet someone. She goes mm-hmm. to meet someone else. She shops for some hats. Well, the, it's the, difficult the to pleasure's in the development of the character, though, right? Yeah, I mean, it does come across as a crash course of maturity, but I don't think any of it felt outlandish. It swings into melodrama, but it's kind of warranted by the circumstances, I feel. Mm. Experience of waiting for these kind of test results that does kind of put you in a, a very strange mood so I, I don't yes. have any particular beef with it for those um, of course Varda was a photographer by trade before entering the world of filmmaking and that shows in the framing of the film cool. and like most of the films we talked about as I think Drew said it's rather more coherent and designed narrative than those say the improvisationalists of the Cahiers to Cinema gang and it serves it in far better stead it's almost as though planning helps when shooting a feature film who'd have thought Bunker, huh? Her viewpoint, story and character is clearly wildly different from likes of Godard and that's presumably why this film is substantially better than Godard's immature, gangster-obsessed fantasy Breathless. <laughs> well, to be honest, Scott, there's not a lot that isn't better than Breathless. Baby Geniuses 2, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Did anybody else pick up at the start of this film, there's a section, and as she's coming down the stairs in particular from the tarot reading, which is really tightly edited to the music, with like a triple with a triple take cut and stuff like that in it, and and even at the start, from her coming down the stairs to walking down the street, even her footsteps seem to be in sync with the rhythm of the music. And then there was, unless I'm unless I miss something, that was kind of dropped from the um, from the editing canon from that point onwards. And I thought it would have been quite interesting for them to maintain that, unless. You know, unless narratively that was serving some purpose. But uh, there's certainly some points where there were sort of like sounds or music in the scene was there for carried after carried into the soundtrack, like the wee boy playing the piano out in the street after mm. she breaks the mirror, mm. and then that just tunes picked up as the soundtrack for the next minute or so. Yeah. So there's there's wee bits of it, but yeah, I don't think it was so it was peppered throughout the films it could have been i don't know what the, yeah, the purpose would have been yeah that's it i wondered if it was purposeful or if it was just kind of something that fell by the wayside or i don't think maybe it would be that like because well, i was gonna say because she at the film this beginning maybe she's feeling better but actually at the film's beginning that's probably when she's most anxious yeah and she gets better at the end so you think of the musicality would come in towards the end rather than the beginning mm. so perhaps uh was there anything else you wanted to add scott no, I think it's at all. I think it's a very well-made piece of observational cinema. I enjoyed it quite a lot. Mm-hmm. It was amongst the it was amongst the films this uh, this podcast that I certainly enjoyed the most. Uh, For me, it was comfortably the best. Yeah, not not as not as much as um, you clearly enjoyed it, Scott. But um, at, at this point in our journey through the French New Wave, I'll take. I'll take any yeah. small win I I'll can put it get. This way. I'll, I'll certainly be looking out for more of Agnes Varda's films that I've not uh, seen. And, yeah. Uh, so, yes. I, I certainly wouldn't be averse to uh, a, a Varda podcast at some point further down the line, actually. So maybe we'll keep that in mind. 
which leaves us with Chris Marker's La Jete, Scott, short film. Yes, The Pier, as you may call it. Uh, I should mention that these film selections came, again, from the Beginner's Guide over at newwavefilm.com. And for La Jete, I think you got as far as reading Inspiration for 12 Monkeys mm-hmm. before signing up to watch it. Yep. Uh, 12 Monkeys. Done. Not not only being a favourite of mine, but also a member of the Technoir subgenre we'll be covering next month. Yep. Almost as almost as though you've thought some kind of linking device there. Almost uh, planned it, Scott. What it didn't say at all, which I feel is rather burying the lead, is that this isn't a film by most folks' definition. Mm-hmm. Uh, director Chris Marker himself calls it a visual novel, which is a far more apt term. So set over a series of photographs, it's the narrative of a man with a very strong memory of a scene at an airport observation deck, the peer of the title, although that's not really a, how we'd call them here, I don't think, but um, no. in a Paris that's uh, since undergone a catastrophic World War Three, with humans driven underground. However, surviving scientists have worked out a method of time travel uh, with hopes to avert the state of affairs and believe that this unusually intense memory will help him withstand the process. And indeed it does, although the course of events do not run smoothly, but perhaps I'll keep them under my hat, not necessarily to avoid spoilers for a film this old, but given that the film's mm. only half an hour long, I'd be in danger of simply repeating the entire plot line verbatim. So I enjoyed Legetti well enough, but I can't help but feel that there's not a great deal to talk about with it. Mm. It's a strong story, it's well narrated, and it's got some very effective imagery. And if you've any interest in science fiction at all, it's a must-see, as much for the historical value as anything else. But it's a strong half-hour entry, and it shows that, along with works of Remy, the, the breadth of story type that could fall under the classification of New Wave. So it does get a recommendation, particularly it's only half an hour long, where you don't really have much to lose by it. And uh, certainly it's anyone who... Well, any right-thinking person who liked the Twelve Monkeys should certainly give it a look into. Uh, it's very interesting to see the inspiration for that, and mm. it's, you know, it's a very clear inspiration. I think it's uh, almost outright theft. <laughs> I was going to say that I yeah. actually had no. I mean, although I'm familiar with the name, I'm aware of it as a film, and I assumed it was mm-hmm. a feature film. Um, I wasn't aware of this as the inspiration for anything, and it was in the sort of last moments of it that I suddenly sort of shouted out. I was bizarrely enough, I was sitting <laughs> watching this in a car on an iPad. And I kind of just shouted out, oh, it's 12 Monkeys. Um, <laughs> and sure enough, yes, uh, it's quite interesting to see um, for, for essentially just a short film and, a, you know, a, a fairly short, short film at that. Um, yes. <laughs> quite the quite the impact this has had stylistically and culturally, which is, this was arguably still rippling through cinema to some uh, degree even now. I had heard of Legete before and knew it was inspiration for 12 Monkeys, although I'd forgotten that by the time I watched this, it was like, why does I, why do I know this name? Why do I know this name? And then it's like, um, and it starts like, oh, yes, right, yes, 12 Monkeys, and I've always wanted to see this. For me, I don't know, I didn't like it much, but I found it interesting, mm. if for nothing else, because it was the, well, I'm going to say inspiration for 12 Monkeys, but as Scott perhaps more readily puts, it's 12 Monkeys. Um, just without people moving about and a terrible wig but um, it's interesting from that point of view it's interesting as, a, as an experiment didn't excite me massively but it is a another way to approach this and like the being a visual novel is a is a better way to describe it than a short film certainly mm-hmm. or a, a the, visual short story I would argue mm-hmm. the narration I'm not sure about because um, also it needs a narration because it doesn't have dialogue yeah but um, I, so I would have preferred that, a different, think, a, a different, more engaging reading voice. Yeah, that's um, certainly because well, I think you'll watch the same version I did, which was with the English narrator. Yes, 
you know, if it felt different watching it with the French narrative, the subtitles possibly. Mm. Um, because normally I'm, I'm very much against narration in films. I think all three of us are. You know, generally, any film that has a narrator can be immediately improved with the removal of that narrator. And <laughs> in this case, you would have no film. It would just be a series of still images, which would be quite strange. Yeah, perhaps it's the narration, the, the actual voice is the problem here. An interesting experiment, certainly quite different from almost anything I've seen outside of like the occasional sort of arty shot that you might see somewhere else. Yeah, I, I'm wittering, I don't have much to say other mm. than that it was interesting. I found the visual novel thing quite engaging as a technique. I think that's arguably its um, strongest the strongest card in its hand. Uh, as a you know, as a story, it's interesting enough and it's uh, it's a neat little science fiction short story of its of its own. Um I'm not entirely sure um about the the somewhat um fanciful method of time travel which isn't really time time travel. But yeah, very, very interesting and visually striking. And um after watching it I thought, wow, I'm surprised that surprised I haven't seen that technique leveraged more, although perhaps I'm just not watching those films. Um I'm sure they probably are around. And I'd be interested to see how that format has been adapted since, assuming that it has. Uh, so I'll maybe do some more research into that. But it's certainly one of the more interesting works that I've looked at here this month. And at half an hour, I'm not going to say to anybody, don't watch it. Uh, especially if, like, you know, like Scott, and I suppose actually I'm quite a fan of 12 Monkeys myself. If you've got any interest in that film, then it's certainly worthwhile looking into. I'm, I'm kind of surprised, actually. I don't. It's not been included on any of the editions of 12 monkeys as an extra has it that would seem like an obvious choice for them but maybe there's a license and uh, there's probably a rights issue there too expensive to license i would imagine actually so i'll shut up yeah i i would heartily recommend checking it out if only just for something different because at half an hour it's not going to steal a great deal of your time and if you don't enjoy it you're probably not going to feel as mad about it as if you sat all the way through breathless so yeah that's the thing for 30 minutes um even if you consider it like experimental and enjoy, don't enjoy it it doesn't I mean, it's maybe on the upper end of that, but thirty minutes is something where you could like watch it just to experience yeah. a different. It's not in any danger of outstaying. It. It's welcome. Yeah, it's know? not feature length. That's it. And actually, I think that's probably broadly to to summarise. I think it's something you could say about most of these films we've spoken about tonight, because I think almost without exception, these other films have come in at almost exactly in a ninety minute mark. Yeah, it's almost uncanny that they're all one and a half hours, which is yeah. so quite a refreshing because occasionally you get a film that can really support a big story. Mm-hmm. For instance, Wolf of Wall Street or most notable Lawrence of Arabia. But yeah. There seems to have been quite a trend and we're not the only people to have commented on this, but in the last maybe 10 years mm-hmm. of films, even like comedies particularly, being mm. two hours long for no good reason. Yeah, absolutely. Like film line seems to be creeping up now. As though to convince you you're getting more, more value for money. Yeah, and I think that I think that's very interesting. Obviously, there was an appreciation here that look, we're dealing, some some of these narratives are appreciably sort of paper thin, um, uh, yet none of these films really... Um, unless you find, you know, unless you find the atmosphere of Marion Bad, um, you know, I can I can understand if people found that. If you don't get into that, I can understand. I mean, I certainly started to find it a bit of a stretch at ninety minutes. That's perhaps the other film on this list that I would suggest might have been better served as a as a short film. Um, yeah, um, I'm, I wasn't joking when I said I watched half of like, the last third of that film at double speed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to note that these films all kind of know when to when to cut their losses and run. And I wish more films today would would adhere to that uh, ethos. But there you go. Uh, any closing thoughts then on our experience with the new wave in general, guys? Well, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? 
clearly there's an awful lot more films than we could possibly hope to cover in these. And I think the ones that we've cherry-picked as what are supposedly the best really haven't been. Mm. And a lot of the ones that I think have been kind of a bit more buried and a bit more obscure that have got popped up in this list were actually, in my opinion, much better. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as usual, it just means that we our tastes differ to quite a lot of other people. And clearly there's... The, there's some good films in there and there's clearly some joy to be had from some of the filmmakers or some of your Truffauts here and some of the folks we've talked about today but it's yeah as I can't say I'm overwhelmingly in love with the whole concept of it as a thing Um, I'm glad that it happened and it's given us all these tools to play with these days but yeah yeah. I can see that too Um, there's certainly some of the films you can definitely see at least a technical influence on other films um, so they have a merit from that point of view. And so you can understand why some of it is understandably um, famous, if nothing else. But um, And yeah, there's a mixed bag there, of course. Mm. But what I'm struggling to see from having finally exposed myself to a lot of these is quite why they're held in the regard that they are. I was going to say it's the reverence mm. that the majority of yeah, these films the are held in more than anything, words. which is which is absolutely baffling me. Yeah, from a technical standpoint, great, but... From a sort of paying public, just viewing pleasure standpoint, I mean, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm glad we sat through this playlist because if nothing else, we've got the 400 blows. And Scott, I, I mean, it sounds like you got a good deal more enjoyment out of the uh, the left bank movies in general than than even yeah, I felt like it. So that's that sounds like a win to me. Um, and you know, at least two of these movies were spoken about on this occasion. Um, I'm committed to going back to um, giving a rewatch. So that's still. It's not a complete bust, but uh, by God, I do think a lot of people, I just get, <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking, this is really the emperor's new clothes. I think a lot yeah. of people <laughs> proclaim to love the Nouvelle Vague purely to be seen to be saying that they love the Nouvelle Vague. I'm, I'm not going to be in that gang. Um, I quite certifiably find the movement as we've explored it, at least with some of these headline movies, they have been quite a big disappointment, but. There are clearly gems amongst there. And as you say, Scott, perhaps if we dug uh, further down into some of the lesser known titles, we might actually find more of uh, reward there. Which I suppose leaves us to wrap up. We will be back in 10 days with our podcast on, as Scott dropped his little fact bomb on you earlier there, if you were paying attention, our episode around Tech Noir. Uh, Scott, what will we be looking at there? Which films? It's obviously inspired by the likes of Blade Runner, but mm. there's uh, other Dark City examples with Dark City. I've watched that a few years now. Yeah, Brazil, City of Lost Children, Thirteenth Floor. We might actually force you to watch another Godard film and we watch Alphaville because that would be a nice linking device. But then again, it's a Godard film, so maybe not. Maybe uh, not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And of course, Brazil, Twelve Monkeys, these kind of things. So there's plenty to talk about and we'll Ooh, look forward to that. Yes, so. that's one to look forward to, and no mistake. So uh, thanks for listening, guys. Once again, as always, uh, please feel free to hit us up at the old emails, uh, podcast.fudsonfilm.com. You can reach us through Facebook. You can reach us through Twitter. Uh, you can, of course, go directly to the blog over at fudsonfilm.com and you can pick us up on SoundCloud. Heck, we're, we're everywhere. You can even just chuck our RSS feed into your podcast catcher of choice and uh, we will be... Yeah, harassing your earlobes every 10 days. 
Yes, so if you've any strong feelings on any of the films we've spoken about over the course of the last month, please do let us know through whichever channel suits you best. But until the 1st of June, I was Craig Eastman, Scott Morris was Scott Morris. Goodbye. And Drew Tavendale was a Drood Havendale. Don't forget to say. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye.